Now, if you'll grab your Bibles, we'll continue our study of the book of uh, Esther. We're going to read the third chapter in its entirety. It's 15 verses. So um, the story moves forward, and we're going to move forward with it. It starts in verse 1, and it says this. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them and told Haman in order, and they they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws. So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it in the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you and the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to to the officials of all the peoples. To every province in its own script and to every people in its own language, it was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. The king said to Haman, then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Guys, in a lot of ways, there's not really any more that should be said about the book of Esther. I've already said it all in the first four sermons. Um, But we're only up to chapter 3. 
But the, um, the broad principle, uh, which is the main principle in the book of providence, has at least been mentioned and investigated at least slightly. Um, but I thought it might help, or at least I hope it will help, to, um, to proceed through the rest of the book uh, to the bitter end in the hopes that you might get more of a glimpse into the intricacy and to the genius of our God at work in a situation where he's never mentioned, his name is never used, and yet his thumbprint is all over it. The Holy Spirit didn't, um, didn't stop at chapter 3, and so we won't either. Hopefully, though, you'll get some or gain some fresher and newer insights to the... Um, to this great issue of the providence of God. In chapter 3, the plot thickens. I mean, you could cut the tension with a knife because there is a feud that's going on here, a feud that goes back for centuries. But in the midst of it all, you've got to ask again, is God a part of this story? Because, ladies and gentlemen, there are certain sections, there are certain parts of this section of the story that you begin to wonder my goodness, I mean, uh, wow, it, where is God in all this? Um, and what I, part of my goal this morning is just to point out several of the places where you may have, well, I don't want to insult you, but you may have missed him. Um, I, I hope you didn't, but if you did, I want to draw your attention to the God who is unseen, unmentioned, unheard. He he's never speaks in this book. But he's all over it. At every turn. Now let me refresh your memory from last week. Um, we Our text last week was chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. And that is a critical piece of this whole story. What takes place in those four verses, that's a critical piece in what's going on here. And, and we looked at it rather cursorily last week, but let me draw your attention to what I mean. And uh, just to, two little details that, that uh, maybe will begin to shape your thinking. I want you, they're both in verse 21. Verse 21 opens up with this, in those days. Well, in what days? Well, in the days where a plot to assassinate the king was being hatched by Big Than and Teresh. And then you'll also notice in verse 21 that it was in those days that Mordecai was at the gate. What gate? Well, he was uh, at that gate uh, that is the entrance to the whole palace complex <laughs> where all of the decisions, civil and, and, and um, political and legal and, and commercial, all those decisions were being made in this, in this massive uh, king of this complex. And apparently Mordecai was some kind of low-level, either civil or political, um, uh, or occupied a low-level political position. Now, here's my point, guys. The author of this story, the narrator of this story, goes out of his way to tell you where Mordecai was and when. Why did he do that? Why does he want you to know the location of Mordecai and his present location? Well, because that's where Big Than and Teresh are hatching this plot 
to assassinate the king. And while they're doing that, Mordecai just happens to be there. Then. And just happens to overhear of this plot that is being discussed by these two men. And so, Mordecai saves the day. Uh, He uh, foils the assassination by taking a report of this plan to the queen, his stepdaughter Esther. She reports it to uh, the king. He investigates, finds out that it's true, and then those two men are are assassinated. Uh, Or, excuse me, are executed. Um, And, guys, don't you see him? There, I mean, in this, this, this critical piece of the development of the story, you know, I asked a moment, is God in the story? Don't you see him? Don't you see him there? He's not mentioned. He's not seen. But he's operating in much the same way that he operates in our lives. God is moving us. There, then, for his own good purposes. I didn't hear him. I didn't see him. But he is behind the scenes moving me. Moving, directing all of us, ladies and gentlemen. Every last one of us. You want to know whether God is in the story? There he is. And then we come to chapter 3. And Xerxes, which is the Greek name of Azure, Xerxes, it's easier to pronounce, but Xerxes promotes Haman. Haman? Wait a minute. <laughs> it was Mordecai who is the one that saved the king's life. So why is it that Haman is, is being promoted? I mean, the text doesn't tell us why, but why is it that he's the one that's being honored? Mordecai is the one that ought to be honored. But Mordecai, instead of being rewarded for his faithful service to the king, is pretty much forgotten. While his wicked opponent is elevated. You know, guys, we have a word for that. You know, that's called, that's called an injustice. You ever tasted one of those? You ever tasted injustice? Are you tasting it now? And um, you wonder, this is not fair. Where is God in, in, in my situation? Well, you hold on to that question because we're going to answer it, I hope, uh, before we're done. But then, guys, um, another five years passes. We're told in verse 7, it's the 12th year now. And Haman is a big shot. Haman is large and in charge, and he's a big shot. And this new little factoid is, is, is inserted into the story. And the, 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 the factoid is that Mordecai won't bow down to Haman. And as a result of that refusal, 
Haman is so infuriated that he hatches his own plan to exterminate all the Jews. Now tell me, first of all, why won't Haman bow down? And secondly, why is it, why won't Mordecai bow down to Haman? And secondly, why is Haman so infuriated that he wants to exterminate an entire people? Why does he just murder Mordecai and get it over with? But instead, Haman skillfully manipulates the king into this to support his evil little plan. And very frankly, the king needed the money for his treasuries uh, since of that uh, disastrous invasion of Greece. And so the king says, here's the seal, stamp it, let's go ahead with it. Now, why is it that Mordecai won't bow down? Why is it that Haman so hates the Jews? Well, guys, did you notice that Haman is called an Agagite? It's in verse 1, it's in verse 10. And you know, um, according to chapter 2, verse 15, I think, that, that Mordecai is a Benjamite. And what does that have to do with anything? So what? Do you know who Agag is? Does that name ring a bell? Well, if you've got your Bibles, if you can find real quick, First uh, Samuel 15... I'll show you something that, that, that I hope would interest you. Um, but, you know, the, the first king of Israel is a guy by the name of Saul. Now, don't confuse him with the New Testament Saul who becomes Paul. Don't confuse. This is Saul, the first king of Israel. I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. We're told, and Samuel, who was in charge of all, everything, said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek, what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go strike Amalek and devote them to destruction. Now, guys, I didn't read this part, but do you know who the king of Amalek is? It's uh, it's down in verse 8. The king of Amalek is a guy by the name of Agag. When Israel, when Israel anoints her first king, Saul, the first piece of instruction that God has for Saul is that I want you to wipe out the Amalekites, who, by the way, has a king by the name of Agag. And, oh, our story tells us that Haman is an Agagite. And by the way, Mordecai is a Benjamite. Guess who else is a Benjamite? be Saul. Saul is a Benjamite. Mordecai is a descendant. Agag has another descendant by the name of Haman. Gang, Agag was this king of the Amalekites at the time that Saul was the first king of Israel. And the Amalekites had the dubious distinction of being the very first people to come out and attack Israel as they were coming out of Egypt to trying to destroy her. And so God promises, I'm going to wipe Amalek off the face of the earth. This Esther story is just another episode, guys, in that ancient war between Israel and the Amalekites. And every indication in this story in Esther looks as if God's people are going to be destroyed once and for all this time. They have no king. That is, Israel has no king. They have no army. 
They have no prophets. They have no land. They have no temple. They have no priesthood. They have no sacrifices. They got doodly squat. They're just this small, defenseless minority living in the mercy, at the mercy of a ruthless and powerful pagan monarchy. Oh my. This is a horrible turn of events. Where is God? How could this be happening? Is he a part of this story or, or, or is he not? Well, gang, the, the answer is found if you've read the book, which I pled with you to do. If you've read the book, you find out that the answer to this dilemma is embodied within this story. And, and it, it all unfolds in chapter 9. And against all odds, the fate of this marginalized people living within a, a hostile world, that fate is reversed. These people, these, these Jews, instead of being exterminated, instead of being killed, they are elevated. And their, their age-old enemy, Haman, not only loses his power, but loses his life. Folks, this theme of reversal... That is, the, the Jews are thinking, oh no, how could this possibly happen? It doesn't happen because as the story unfolds, this, this whole destiny is reversed and the good guys become the bad guys and the bad guys become the good guys. That theme of reversal operates at many levels throughout this story in Esther, but it also operates throughout the whole Bible. You know, when this is all over in chapter 9, they have a feast and it's called the Feast of Purim. And listen to what's said. And uh, at this, uh, the month has been turned, and it's been turned from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. <coughs> there, was a, there was some people that wanted to do away with God's people. And yet the unmentioned, unseen God orchestrated the circumstances such that this thing that seemed to be unfolding as the destruction of God's people instead. <laughs> it turns into the, the prosperity of God's people. Gang, that reversal of destiny is a major theme spanning the entire Bible, culminating in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can I tease that out for you just for a quick minute? L ladies and gentlemen, you and I, just like these exiled Jews in a, in a hostile world, they deserve to die. So do you and me. But our fate was reversed by the seemingly insignificant death of one man whose name is Jesus of Nazareth. C can't you just see him? In fact, it's, it's, it's all throughout the New Testament. Um, he's dragging that cross through the streets of Jerusalem. And people are standing on the sidewalks and they're saying, Hey, 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 I thought you said you were the Messiah. 
Hey, if you're the king of the Jews, then why don't you save us and you and come down from there? It all seems so bleak. And then, three days after they buried him, there was a reversal. The resurrection. And death is replaced with life. Death is reversed. Everything sad comes untrue. Gang, don't you see it? The story of Esther is, is like a it's like a small down payment on that story, the one that 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 culminated in Christ's death and resurrection. It's a it's a story that's just a small hint. It's just a just a, a very common picture of a theme, of a theme that woe is that is woven into this whole book about how God who who controls circumstances and reverses them. Ladies and gentlemen, there's another one coming. There's another reversal that we await. And while we await it, we're studying the book of Esther, which is just a a small illustration of how of how this God operates, this God of ours, unseen, unmentioned, and yet as we look at our circumstances and we see them and think, how could this get taken care of? It reverses. Okay, Jimmy, I, I, um, I hear what you're saying about Christ in that reversal and understand that another reverse and, and, and to large measure I, I understand that and I, and I believe it but my concern is, is not for the future my, my concern is for now the mess that I'm in now where is he in the mess that I'm in now and there's a lot of us in messes aren't we There's one in every pew. There's a big old mess in every pew. And and even a couple behind the pulpit here. What about those messes? Well, let, let me return you to the story real quickly and we'll quit. Guys, I want to point out again that Mordecai is a hero in at the end of chapter 2. And yet, his loyalty to the king, not only was it not acknowledged, it was forgotten for five years. Why? Have you figured this part of the story out? Because, ladies and gentlemen, had Mordecai been rewarded immediately after he had exposed this assassination plot, as was custom, Haman would have succeeded in his plot to exterminate the Jews. 
But you see, Haman is not in charge and neither am I and neither are you. But our good heavenly father is. And so as a part of his making this thing work for the redemption of his people, what happens is he blots out the memory of the king so that he doesn't even think about rewarding the man who just saved his life. That, ladies and gentlemen, is an injustice. You you ever tasted that? Ladies ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you that he is just as much in your injustice as he was in this one. He's up to something. Let me just show you one other. God is so in control that even the day chosen for the extermination of his people is a part of his plan. Hey guys, did you notice when this edict was sent out? It's in verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month as an edict according... Do you remember, do you know what the 13th day of the first month is in the Jewish calendar? That's Passover Eve. You know what Passover is for Judaism, don't you? It's that celebration where God delivered his people... And so on the eve of the day that all of Israel is going to celebrate the time that God delivered, there's this edict that goes out and all the couriers are announcing, you're going to die. We're going to exterminate you. And so, did you see at the end of the chapter, the whole city was thrown into confusion? You bet it was. And, And here's this Jewish fellow and he's walking up and down the streets of Susa and he's saying, wait a minute, let me get this straight. What you're saying to me is that tomorrow you want me to go to the synagogue and you want me to celebrate how good God is for having delivered us from Egypt when I have just been told that I'm going to be exterminated in 11 months. Did I understand you rightly? Yeah, you got it right. I don't get that. And I say to you, my brother and sister in Christ, in the midst of our own confusion, why is this happening to us? Why am I experiencing this? Why did I get bypassed? Why are my kids acting like they're acting? Why why am I tasting this piece of injustice? I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that our comfort is found in the great doctrine in the book of Esther, known as Providence. I want to read you something. Um, It came out of the Heidelberg Catechism, and I know you're unfamiliar with that document. But you may know the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith, it's kind of a companion. The Heidelberg Confession of Faith, it's for the Dutch Reformed, um, Christian Reformed Church, but it's a very similar document. But they both have these things called catechisms. And they're teaching tools. You've seen a catechism. If, if, you're a, if you've been around much, you've heard about the Westminster Catechism where it says, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God. That's a catechism. Well, I want to read you from the Heidelberg Catechism concerning providence. So what happens is you ask a question and then they answer it. This is, this is almost poetic. 
The question 27 in the Heidelberg Catechism is this. What do you understand by the providence of God? Or what is the providence of God? Listen. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, Health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Let me read that one more time. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth. And all its creatures. And so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, fruit, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance. But from his fatherly hand. That's what this book is about, ladies and gentlemen. Let me give you question 28. How does the knowledge of God's providence help us? Answer. We can be patient when things go against us. You had any of that lately? We can be thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from His love. All creatures are so completely in His hand. That would be my boss. That would be my children, my government. All creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they can neither move nor be moved. Against all odds, in some inscrutable and and mysterious way, the events of human history are moving forward in such a way as to fulfill all of the promises that God made to Abraham in the covenant. Part of that covenant was, Abraham is going to, you and your people are going to be a blessing to the entire world. So I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, no one, no one will be able to destroy Judaism. Not Haman, Not Hitler, not Ahmadinejad. You know, guys, one of the themes of this book is about God's providence. Yes, it's the theme. But one part of that is, 
It's about God's providence through life's injustices and through those situations that's not fair. Why does she get pregnant four months into her marriage and now eight years into ours, we still aren't pregnant? It's about God's providence in setbacks, disappointments. You know, the Bible frequently asks, why does the, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why is it, ladies and gentlemen, why is it that the movement to make marriage into a same-sex definition or to include a same-sex definition why is that winning? And we who believe otherwise, we're the enemy. We're the wicked. You know, ladies and gentlemen, there are still forces at work in this world that are bent on destroying God's people. The world still believes, as Haman says, their laws are different from those of other people and they do not keep the king's laws. So that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Christians are traitors to the king. This is a story about the hostility of the world against God's people. And a coming, certain reversal. You know, guys, most of us like to think that through uh, thoughtful and careful planning and, and righteous living, that we can, um, we can successfully um, alter or, or at least direct the course of our lives. And a lot of times, you know, life cooperates. So we conclude that we're in charge, we're in control. That's a myth. But I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, God is even using injustices to bring Him glory. The greatest of which, the greatest injustice of which is this one. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And after Herod and Pontius Pilate had done their worst, there was a reversal. Our Father, would you remind us of your great sovereign providence over 
over leaf and blade, over rain and drought, over fruitful and lean years, over food and drink, over prosperity and over adversity, would you remind us that all things come to us, not by chance, but from your fatherly hand. Just as we see taking place in this book, for my brother and sister who is tasting the the bitter draft of injustice at this very moment, would you grant them grace to hear how an unseen and an unmentioned and an unwanted God is steering all of history in a way that will benefit and bless his people. Father, if you brought people here this morning who have not yet met the Savior and wonder about all this that's going on and all that they're hearing, would you show them that ultimately the greatest need that they have is for a Savior? Might Jesus Christ be seen in all of his beauty? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.